Well, hello, everyone. I, uh, I do not get the opportunity to be with you guys as we're singing God's praises and worshiping with you. Usually, I'm like up on stage, and to really just be with you guys and experience that with you was really a, a privilege for me. So, guys, thank you so much for, for being my church. You guys are just, you are family, and it is so good to be with you. Um, there's been so much going on in the last month, it seems. We have entered a time of season that is generally really busy, and there is a question that I have not been able to, uh, able to escape, even in the busyness. No matter how much Thanksgiving food I eat, no matter how much football I watch, no matter how many times I watch the Star Wars Force Awakens trailer, um, no matter how many games the Iowa Hawkeyes win, there is this question that I cannot escape, and I don't think... I'm the only one. In the last month, we've seen a lot of tragedy, a lot of heartbreak, scandal, sorrow. And so I think really, in a certain way, we're all asking this question, and that is, what is wrong with the world? It seems like that is the question that so many people really have today. Um, there are a lot of different ideas about what is wrong with the world and a lot of different philosophies about how to fix the world, but everybody seems to agree on that question. Have you ever noticed the question is never, is there anything wrong with the world? The question, ever, for the most part, we all have that figured out. The question is always, what is wrong with the world and how do we fix it? Now, some of you are looking up at me right now and you're like, Jed, I know at least one thing that's wrong with the world, and that is you are the worship leader and you are attempting to give a sermon. What is going on? <laughs> this is true. This is true. John, uh, you made, as we said earlier today, we are one church, multiple locations. And John is actually in one of our other locations um, giving, uh, giving a sermon right now. He really would like to be with us today, but for the moment, um, he's kind of, duty calls him to be somewhere else. So, Good luck, you're stuck with me. We'll, we'll see how this turns out. Um, one thing I do want to uh, kind of bring to your attention, um, and this is my fault. Pastor John is actually giving a sermon on the scripture reading that we heard earlier today. Um, that scripture reading really scared me, so I'm not gonna give you that sermon. I really apologize for this. This, this is my fault. Instead, I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bibles open, to, to Luke 15, and we're actually uh, gonna be discussing a, a story that I think a lot of you have heard before. It's called the story of the prodigal son, or sometimes called the parable of the lost son, and this is probably, for a lot of us, um, a story that we've heard since we were little kids, if you've grown up in the church. You know, growing up, I still, as a child, I um, had... Uh, really a wonderful and blessed life. My parents were just awesome. In fact, they still are awesome. In fact, my mom is over there, and she's great. You should all try to meet her afterwards. And um, because of that, I feel like I've really lived a blessed life. I was born in Wisconsin. We lived in Minnesota for a while, and then we moved down to Iowa when I was like 10 or 11 years old, somewhere in there. And I've got three younger sisters, and my three younger sisters are just Awesome. Now, as a child, I have like a really kind of simple idea of what it means, of what might be wrong with the world. It's like I had this consciousness that there are, the world isn't quite right, but for the most part, my idea was really, really simple. Um, really, if I was obedient with my parents, the world was perfect. It was great. I could be left alone, and I could play with my Legos, and I could play with my Ninja Turtle action figures, and the world was wonderful, and the world was awesome. If I was disobedient to my parents, well, then that was another story entirely. Then all of a sudden the world was a horrible place full of reprimands, full of spankings, of groundings, of timeouts, and worst of all, the lectures. The lectures are always the worst part. 
And so for me, it was a very simple idea. If I followed the rules, if I did what my parents wanted me to do, I was totally okay. I realized that as the oldest child, I have three younger sisters, and they're all great, but as the oldest child, I didn't have any, any older siblings to learn from, or maybe I should rephrase it. I didn't have any older siblings to wear my parents down, so I had to develop this acute sensitivity to what would please my parents and what would not. Um, I had to try to sort of read in between the lines of what they would say. And I feel that as an oldest child, I got pretty good at that. And for some of you who are oldest children, I think this is probably uh, a common thing. Raise your hand if you're like the oldest out of your siblings. Okay, quite a few of you. All right, we're going to start our own small group, guys, and our own counseling (laughs) session. This will be great. But for some of us, we tend to kind of become parent pleasers because we don't have an older sibling to learn from or an older sibling to wear our our parents down, if you want to word it that way. We tend to kind of develop this acute sensitivity to what our parents might be pleased with and what they weren't pleased with. My younger sisters, though, they didn't necessarily have this acute sensitivity. When we first moved to Iowa, we was like, you know, I was uh, like 11 years old, and my three younger sisters were all of about elementary age, and um, we first, when we first moved in, we didn't have time to really buy a house or anything like that, so we moved into this three-bedroom apartment. Now, this was great for me. I was the only boy. I got my own bedroom. It was, it was awesome. It was great. I was left alone with my Ninja Turtles and with my Lego sets, uh, but my sisters did not have the same luck. If you're doing the math, this means that we had to cram my three sisters into one bedroom. That is a recipe for drama. That is just like bad things will happen, especially since my younger siblings didn't have my acute sensitivity of what my parents liked and didn't like. And so it was a common thing, a common occurrence for there to be maybe some kind of drama or some kind of dispute or some kind of argument. And I started to learn really quickly that if I isolated myself from them during those times, like if I got a whiff that one of my sisters was like in a bad mood or I could find out or feel that this like point of contention was going to be coming up, that all of a sudden I would be like just kind of escape to my room, let the storm happen, let the storm brew, let my parents swoop in, do what they did, and then I would emerge later on out from my bedroom with Ninja Turtles in hand and prove to my parents that I really was the good son and in my eyes the favorite son and it's certainly the most obedient because, you know, that's all it takes to become your your parents' favorite is to be the most obedient. Um... So my idea of what it was, what was wrong with the world, was a very, maybe shall we say, oversimplified idea. And growing up in high school and in college, I started to realize that the world was a much different place than I was used to. It was much harsher. There was a lot of heartache, a lot of tragedy, and a lot of sorrow in the world. Um, I soon realized that uh, my idea of what was right with the world and what was wrong with the world was really way over my head and way over my pay grade, to be honest. For some of you, I think um, you've probably wrestled with that same question of what is wrong with the world? We've seen all sorts of different philosophies and different ideas, whether it's on TV, websites, or blogs. But you probably, a lot of you, might actually really relate to my story. You've lived, I don't know if a sheltered life is really good, uh, the right way to say it, but you've lived a life where your parents loved each other and loved you unconditionally. They gave everything they could possibly give to you. Maybe they weren't perfect. Maybe they were really, really close. But for the most part, your parents were really good. And all of a sudden, growing up, you started to realize that the rest of the world was not as, shall we say, serene as your dining room table. The rest of the world can be 
really harsh, and then all of a sudden you started to have this sense growing to you that something is drastically wrong with the world. Certainly, the world is broken. For others of you, you can't relate to my story, and I wish you could. Perhaps there was addiction in your childhood. Maybe there was an abusive parent or an abusive relative. Maybe growing up, you were the offender. But for whatever reason, you've, you really know that there's something wrong with the world. You've experienced it firsthand in your own life. And so you are also wrestling with this question of what is wrong with the world? And then still for some of us, I'm speculating here, but I wouldn't be surprised if you're walking into this church for the first time and for the most part, you're, you've never really given this God thing a try. You've never really given this Jesus thing a try. You've, you've kind of thought that really the whole church is kind of maybe what is wrong with the world. And for whatever reason, maybe it's just pure curiosity, maybe it's a moment of desperation, but for whatever reason, you are here today and you're just gonna be like, all right, I'm gonna give this whole church thing just, just one shot, just, just to see maybe, maybe they have some answers. And if they don't, I'm out of here. But this is something that we are all wrestling with. What is wrong with the world? And so today, we're gonna be talking about a familiar story. It's in Luke 15. I wanna say it starts at uh, chap- or Luke 15, verse 11. And this is the story of the lost son, the parable of the lost son, the parable of the prodigal son, as it's often called. And this is a very familiar story. For those of us who have grown up in a church, we have heard this story before. And I would like you to maybe try to get rid of any preconceived notions, because I think this is more than just a story about redemption. This is more than just a story about a son who was lost and then is found again. Rather, this is sort of Jesus's commentary on his idea of what What is wrong with the world? Now, in order for us to really appreciate what is going on here, we're going to have to use our imaginations. I kind of feel like Mr. Rogers saying that. Um, We're going to have to use our imaginations. We're not really going to the land of make-believe, but we're going to pretend like we are back in the time of Israel, or the time of Jesus when he is alive and he's on the earth and he's with everybody and he's in the, the, the throes of his ministry and there's a large crowd gathering around him. And we're going to pretend like all of a sudden Jesus is there, we're in this crowd and he's starting to tell these stories. He's starting to tell these parables and we can feel that there's just so much tension going on. So I want you to kind of use your, your imagination as I am setting up this scene for you, uh, this scene that which uh, Jesus is telling this story. First, there is a large crowd around Jesus. Um, Jesus is following, he's definitely growing, his notoriety is definitely growing. Jesus is actually a very kind of controversial figure. Sometimes we think of him as, you know, Jesus is my homeboy kind of a thing. That's not the way people really talked about him or thought about him uh, when he was on earth with us. Rather, he was a very scandalous figure. He was a point of a lot of tension. He was very controversial. And one of the reasons why there was so much controversy around Jesus was this group called the Pharisees. And in this large group listening to Jesus is this group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who were really on a purity kick. They had this idea um, that God was going to just nuke everything. If he was angry at someone, he was going to nuke him. And they were waiting for the wrath of God to come. And they thought, all right, the way we avoid this wrath is we 
And we follow all of his rules. We, we follow all of his rules to the letter. And if we don't, we might not survive. We, we, so we have to follow this rules. And then they had this other great idea. Um, all right, so if, if we have to follow this rule in order to escape God's wrath, maybe let's buffer it and add some more rules to it. So just, just to be safe, just to make sure we're, we're following everything to the letter and God will be pleased with us and then that way we can escape his wrath. We won't get spiritually nuked like everyone else. Rather, we will be, he'll be pleased with us because we did everything right. And one of the things that they said is that you had to be designated clean. And in order to be clean, you had to follow all the rules, but you also had to disassociate with anybody who might be considered unclean. If someone was unclean, and so, like let's say I am quote-unquote clean, and all of a sudden I hang out with a person who's unclean, then all of a sudden I become unclean. And this it was a very unfortunate side effect that happened here because it meant that the spiritual leaders of the time disassociated themselves with the people who probably needed spiritual guidance the most. And so Jesus is doing his thing, and Jesus healed some people, and if I was there, you know, if, if I'm like living in Israel at that time, and Jesus heals someone, I am amazed. Like, I'm like, whoa, that is incredible. The Pharisees, however, did not have this same response. There were too many rules to be followed for them to be amazed. See, the problem was Jesus made one itty-bitty mistake as he's healing people. He accidentally healed someone on the Sabbath. Oh, I can't believe it. I mean, Jesus, you should know better. Why are you healing someone on the Sabbath? Jesus isn't following the Pharisees' rules the way that they would want him to follow him. So, because of this, in this context, the Pharisees confront him, and then Jesus, with this large, large crowd gathered, starts to tell this story. And um, he tells three stories in Luke 15. The first story is the, what we call the parable of the lost sheep. And it's a really simple story, follows a very simple pattern. A sheep gets lost, and the shepherd immediately abandons the flock. He, he drops his schedule, drops his agenda. He goes and finds that sheep, and then he brings it back. And when he brings it back, he celebrates. He is so thankful that he found this lost sheep. That's story number one. Story number two is the parable of the lost coin. And in this story, a woman loses a precious coin, and immediately her schedule and her agenda just goes out the window. She's got one priority. That is actively go out and search for this coin, and she searches and she, she searches, and once she finds it, she brings it back and she celebrates. And then we have the story of the parable of the lost son. And that starts in verse 11. And this first part, a lot of us, I think, really know. In verse 11, Jesus starts off saying, a man had two sons. That's always good to know. All right, a man has two sons. And then he says the younger brother, the younger brother actually uh, went to his father and he said, Dad, I want us to split up the inheritance right now. Like, like, let's get this over with. I want to split up the inheritance. Now, use your imagination. If you are in that crowd listening to Jesus tell this story, you are shocked by this. You are shocked by the audacity and the behavior of this young brother. Because what this young brother is saying is that this younger son is saying, Father, I've... I've really only been in this, not really for my relationship with you. I have been in this for your stuff. I have been in this for your money, for your wealth. That's really all I want. And frankly, you're, you might as well be dead to me. I really don't care. So, what, you know, 
you're taking too long to die. Let's speed up this process and let's just divide the inheritance right now and I'll be on my merry way. I don't have to deal with you anymore. That would be great. This is shocking behavior, what the younger brother is doing right now. The the younger brother is giving his father such a, a hurtful and horrible insult, pretty much saying, Dad, you're dead to me. Just give me your stuff right now. So in verse 12, we see that uh, uh, the inheritance gets split up. The inheritance gets divided, and it actually gets divided between both sons. So even though the younger brother was the one who initiated this whole thing, the older brother gets his inheritance as well. And then, kind of as many of us know, the younger brother goes off, goes to a faraway land. He squanders his wealth. I imagine, you know, um, some just wild trip to Vegas or something like that. And he, he goes out and he just wastes all the money. He squanders it. He lives a life of, shall we say, moral experimentation, moral rebelliousness. He's not really necessarily following the rules at this point in time. Really, he is simply wasting everything, living for his pleasure, living for the moment, and not taking any consideration of the wishes or will of his father. Finally, there is a famine. He loses all of his money. He, he owes money to people, and he gets a job, just a little job feeding cattle, feeding livestock. And he realizes all of a sudden that the, the livestock is actually eating better than he is. And so... He hits rock bottom. He hits rock bottom and he gets this idea, this crazy idea and this crazy notion. He's like, you know what? The guys who work for my, my dad's business, the family business, the, even at the entry-level job, the entry-level positions, they, they eat a lot better than this. Maybe, maybe I can go back? No? What? I mean, I don't know. I left in, in such an insulting way. But maybe I can go back and I, there's no way my dad would ever even consider me family again. But maybe I can go back and maybe I can at least get an entry-level job and start to feed myself and be able to pay off my debts. So the son finally gets some sense knocked into him and he starts going to his father's property and to his father's house. And his father has been looking for him. His father has been looking for him. I don't know why. I mean, I don't have any children, but I can only imagine how hurt I would be if like I had a son and he was like, dad, you're dead to me. I'm out of here. Just give me the stuff you promised me and let me go. Like I would be so hurt. I don't know if I would really be searching for my son. And so here we have, um, all of a sudden we have Um, the son or the father looking out and he sees his son, the son that has insulted him, the son that has hurt him, the son that has squandered so much of his wealth. And what is his reaction? I think my reaction would be honestly to, to make like a power move, to have you like crawl to me and grovel and ask for forgiveness. Or maybe send out a servant and be like, hey, tell him to just wait there for a while, like a week or something. And I'll, when, I'm bu- when, when I'm done with all of my stuff and I'm not busy, then I, maybe I'll give him some attention. But that is not the father's response. The father's response is to run for him, to run to him. Like an undignified, crazy person, he just runs to his son and he embraces him. And when he gets to the son, he's like, son, this whole entry-level job thing, like, forget that. No, no, forget that. I want to reinstate you into my family again. You are my son. I thought, I thought you could have been dead. I thought, 
I had no idea what happened to you. I, I don't care about what happened before. I want you back as a member of my family. And so he brings in his son. He's like, guys, we're throwing a party because my son is back. And this is a moment of redemption. This is a moment where we see this amazing love that the Father has. For some of us, for some of us here today, we really relate to this younger brother. As we look at our lives, it's like we're looking at a mirror when we see this story. Maybe, for whatever reason, we decided to become morally experimental or simply rebel against the authorities that God had put in our place and we told God, God, you are dead to me. I want nothing to do with you. I want out of this whole thing. And you lived a life much like this younger brother where you did whatever you want. You lived for the moment. You lived a life that was pleasing at the moment. And then all of a sudden, you realized how empty that life can be. You hit rock bottom. And then you're like, maybe my father will let me come back. And I want to let you know the Father doesn't want to simply give you an entry-level position in the kingdom of God. He wants to reinstate you as his child. He wants to reinstate you as his daughter and as his son. He wants to reinstate you in the royalty of heaven. The Father is running to you. The Father is running to you and embracing you right now. The, the father is so happy that you're back. He really doesn't care about your past. He is so happy that you're back. He wants to throw a huge celebration for you. And so you need to know that you are family here. There's a, a verse that I felt was just so, so fitting. And let's put it up on the screen here and let's, uh, let's read it together. This is from Romans. No power in the sky above nor in the head, <laughs> thank you, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. God's love for us is so great that it does not matter what we do. Welcome home. We're so glad to have you back in the family. Now, usually this is where the sermon would end, and a lot of you probably wish the sermon would end right now. Um, but remember how Jesus started this story. He said a man had two sons. And a lot of times it's easy for us to overlook the older brother in this scenario. But if we overlook the older brother, we are really missing out on the main point that Jesus is trying to make here. So in verse 28 is uh, where we'll, we'll pick up. And the older brother, uh, sorry, I have my place wrong. Verse 25 is where we'll pick up. Uh, so while there's a huge celebration going on, meanwhile, the older son was in the field working, and he returned home and heard music and dancing, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he told him, and your father has killed the fattened calf, and we are celebrating his safe return. The older brother has kind of become the CEO right now of the family business, and he's been diligently working, doing what he has to do as a CEO. And all of a sudden, there's a party going on, and that's probably a little uh, uh, kind of putting off some alarms because his father has already divided up the inheritance. That means whatever party is going on is at the older son's expense. 
Um, verse 28, the older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. Verse 29, but he replied, all these years I have slaved for you and never once refused to do any single thing you told me to. And in all of that time, you never gave me even one young goat for the feast, uh, to have a feast with my friends. We see some very interesting things about the older son in these couple of verses. First, we see that he is not happy with his brother's return. And I imagine that if I was him, I wouldn't necessarily be happy either. I would probably be like, all right, hey, Sorry, younger brother, you said uh, my dad was dead to you, so you know what? For all, it, it just seems right that you're dead to me. Get out of here. Why are we throwing this party? And he's looking at his dad, and he's wondering, why aren't you acting this way? We also see a sort of a, a little example of the older brother's philosophy and worldview in this moment. See some of the language that he just used. He said, I have slaved for you. I never once refused to do a single thing you told me. The philosophy and outlook of the older brother is a performance-driven outlook. It's an outlook that says, if I do what is right, then dad, you will have to reward me. And in a lot of ways, he's kind of showing his true hands and how he really feels about the father. You see, the younger, the younger brother really just wanted his dad, was concerned about his relationship with his dad because of his stuff. And what we see in a lot of ways, the older brother is exactly the same. This is called the parable of the lost son, but I would uh, contend that maybe a more appropriate title is that this should be called the parable of two lost sons. Because in this case, both sons were equally lost. One left home, insulted his dad, and simply went out and lived a wild lifestyle. The other son was so convinced in his performance-driven mentality, he was so convinced that if he just did whatever it was that he had to do, that his father would have to, to give him whatever he wants. He was trying to use his good works as leverage to get what he wanted from his father. In other words, he didn't really care about his father at all. He just wanted him, like the younger brother, he wanted the relationship for what he could get out of it. He wanted the relationship for his stuff. This, I think I would call the trap of the older brother. Um, you like that? It's pretty great. I was pretty excited about that slide. And this is a trap that I think for so many of us can be so deceptive and so compelling at the same time because it gives us a reason to really be proud of ourselves. It gives us a reason to be proud of the things we've done, of the good works that we've done, of everything that we've accomplished. It gives us a reason to be arrogant. All of a sudden we feel like we have grounds to judge and we feel like we have grounds, we have rights and we have an entitlement attitude because, hey, I followed the rules. Dad, you have to do what I want because I followed the rules. I did everything that you told me to. This is a very dangerous disease. This is a very dangerous trap. In fact, I think the older brother might even be more lost than the younger brother because the younger brother was able to hit rock bottom. The younger brother found out the hard way that he couldn't do it, but the older brother is thinking that he can. The older brother is thinking, 
Dad, throw me all the rules. I'll slave for you. Give me what, hit me with any kind of charge. Hit me with, with anything. God, I, I can do it, Dad. I can totally do it. And when I do, well then, you're gonna owe me. See, the problem with the older brother is he's fooling himself into thinking that he isn't lost, that he can do it. And that is why the trap of the older brother is so, so sneaky. The truth is, is that whether you have lived a life where you have had a lot of moral failings in your life, you have had a lot of mistakes, you have made a lot of bad judgment calls, or maybe you've grown up in a Christian home, you've grown up in a Lutheran church your whole life, you've just been the perfect little Lutheran, you still even remember all the verses you learned in confirmation. I've got news for you. Both of us are lost. Both groups are lost. Our good works, our good morals, they are not good enough. Do this for me. Would you uh, turn to one of your neighbors and say, I'm not good enough. Now turn to your other neighbor and say, and that's a good thing. (laughs) Guys, this might be some of the best news you hear all day. We're not good enough. We really are not good enough, and I am so thankful for that. I know you're probably thinking I'm crazy for thinking about that, so if you are like a note-taker and you like lists, I've got a list for you. Are you ready? These are like whatever amount of reasons why it's good we aren't good enough. All right? You got it? You got it? All right. Reason number one. Um, It's good that we aren't good enough because it gives us confidence. Yes, it gives us confidence confidence that we are not good enough. And here is why. If we, if, if this whole Christianity thing was this rule-based system, if it was dependent upon our performance, I've got news for you. It's not guaranteed that we will always be able to perform. Some of you know uh, a gentleman by the name of Peyton Manning. He is the starting quarterback for the Denver Broncos, or sort of the starting quarterback for the Denver Broncos. This guy has all the stats. He it really is, from a statistical standpoint right now, we have to say that he is the best quarterback alive right now. There's a problem, though. He's, his performance as a quarterback has been amazing. The problem is, is that recently he has not been playing very well. He's not been performing very well. And so his status with this team, his status as a quarterback, as a starting quarterback, is in question right now. When our mentality, and if if this whole Christ thing was a performance thing, then our status would be in question so much. But because this game is played differently, because this game is dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ that has already happened, we can be confident in what has already happened. We don't have to be like Peyton Manning, wondering if we're gonna be the starting quarterback or wondering what the status is with our Heavenly Father. Because of Jesus Christ, we can rest assured, we can have confidence. So reasons why we're not good enough or reasons why we're not good enough is a good thing, so many Gs, uh, is that we can be confident. Um, Reason number two would be unconditional love. It means that God sending down his son, this whole church thing, this whole Jesus thing, this whole Christianity thing, ultimately is because God loves us unconditionally. 
He is like the father running to the younger brother. He doesn't care about the past. He doesn't want us for what we can do for him. He wants us because he wants to know us, because he unconditionally loves us. So many times in our lives, we, especially in our careers, our careers are very performance-based. And so a lot of times that can start to kind of uh, uh, work into our mentality as we look into the rest of our life. But I gotta tell you, I wanna just suspend that for a moment. Would you just, just suspend that whole kind of performance-driven uh, uh, worldview that we get from our culture in general and realize that this whole Christianity thing is simply God wanting to be with you. He wants to know you unconditionally. He doesn't care about what we can do for him. Uh, reason number three why not being good enough is a good thing, I finally said it right, is that it frees us from anxiety. Like, I would imagine right now that Peyton Manning is probably a little anxious about his status on the team, whether or not he's gonna be starting another game. Because we are, because we realize that we are lost, no matter how good we've been or what mistakes we have made, because we realize that we can be free from any fear or anxiety. We're not gonna get kicked off the team. We're not gonna get kicked off the team, guys. The, the father loves us, and it doesn't matter what we've done. He wants to reinstate our status in the family. He wants to reinstate us as his sons and his daughters. And now the implications of this, the implications of this kind of way of looking at things can sometimes be a little bit unsettling. One of the implications of this is that arrogance should be a foreign concept to us. And I know a lot of us have had uh, exposure with religious people who uh, claim to be Christ followers, but there is a definite arrogance about them. They feel maybe uh, a little stuck up and if I'm honest, I feel like I've probably been that person before, more than I would like to admit. I wouldn't be surprised if there's some of us in here who have also been that person. And what we need to realize is that if we are living on this whole philosophy that Jesus has done it all for us, that both sons in the story were lost, then we must realize that arrogance is a foreign concept for a Christ follower. It means that we have no grounds to judge. How can one lost son judge another lost son? It doesn't make any sense. It's completely nonsensical. We must give up any sort of arrogance and any sort of judgment that we might have. Any pride that we might cling on to because, oh, I've gone through confirmation or I go to church every Sunday or I help out with this program, all of that we must totally rethink how we think of that and realize that that is not anything to do with our status with the Father, but rather it means that we have, no matter what good things we have done, it is still all because of Jesus. It also means that compassion should be a natural reaction for us. Compassion should be something that we immediately start to, uh, uh, just a knee-jerk reaction for us. It means that feelings of inadequacy are in the past. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Isn't that awesome? I love that. There, now, imagine for a moment that you are in that crowd, you're listening to Jesus tell this story, 
and there would have been something that is really kind of odd that would have stuck out to you. Here's, here's what that would have been. In the first story, the parable of the lost sheep, there was the sheep that got lost, and then the shepherd went out and retrieved that sheep back. In the second story, there was the parable of the lost coin. A coin was lost. Something was lost. A woman went out, and she found that coin and brought it back and celebrate. In this story, though, that pattern kind of breaks a little bit. And this is, this is kind of interesting. This, if, if you were in that crowd, in that, while well, Jesus is telling this story, this would have stuck out to you as a little odd, because something gets lost. The younger brother clearly gets lost, but nobody goes out and searching for it. The, the pattern, the rhythm has, has broken up. No one goes searching for that younger brother. That would have struck you as really odd. And if you were in that crowd, you would have grown up with this idea of the brother's keeper. And the whole idea with the brother's keeper is you would have known instinctively that the person to go searching for that younger brother was the older brother. The older brother should have been the one searching for the son to bring him back, to reconcile him with the father at his own expense. But that didn't happen. In Advent, we look to a savior. We look to our Messiah. We look to this baby in the manger. And this baby, this little baby we call Jesus, is the perfect older brother. He is the one who has said, I am going to go out in search of my family, in search of my lost sisters, in search of my lost brothers, and I will find them and I will bring them back at my own expense. I will bring them back to the Father so that we can be a family again, so that we can commune with each other again, so that we can get to know each other again. Jesus Christ is that perfect older brother. So what is wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world? I think what Jesus is pointing out in this whole story is he's saying, hey, you Pharisees, I got news for you. You're just as much what is wrong with the world as anyone else. And when you think about it that way, it starts to totally change your mindset about what is wrong with the world. Maybe what's wrong with the world isn't so much that there is a group of people just living their own way, defying everything, and then you have a a group of people who are really stuck up and want to tell people everybody else how to live and make everybody else follow their rules. Maybe, Maybe what's really wrong with the world is that we're lost. Is that we're lost. And ultimately, Jesus has come down to earth in the form of this baby in the manger to bring us back home to our family, to reinstate us as family at his own expense. Today, we're going to be leaving this building, and as we do, we are going to go to our jobs, we're going to go to our places of recreation, the places we hang out, coffee shops, pick up basketball, you name it. And we are going to encounter a lot of people who are like that younger brother. People who have pretty much said, God, you are dead to me. I don't believe in you. Or maybe they had a bad experience and like, God, you know, I don't want anything to do with this whole Jesus thing, with this whole God thing. We are going to encounter a lot of people like that. Will you be like the Pharisees? And will you isolate yourself from them? Will you look at them condescendingly? Will you judge them? 
Or will you be like Jesus? And will you be like the perfect older brother? And will you invite them into your life? Will you fellowship with them? Will you invite them to your home? Will you reach out to them? And also, as you go out to your places of work, the places where you hang out, you're gonna find a lot of people like the older brother. A lot of people who are very confident in their moral superiority. They see life with sort of condescending eyes. They can't get over, they're too blind to get over their own arrogance. Will you refuse to be offended by their arrogance and refuse to be offended by their judgment? And will you reach out to them as well? Can I have you stand, please? There are so many stories in this room. Stories like mine where, you know, you had a really great home and life was great. Some people might call you sheltered and you just don't care. You're like, hey, this was a blessing and I'll take it. And then we have other stories here where there have been a lot of tragedy and a lot of heartache and a lot of sorrow. Today, Jesus is rewriting our story. He's saying that our past does not matter and that our differences don't matter. No matter how good we've been, no matter how many mistakes that we have made, the work of Jesus Christ is the great equalizer. We are all lost without him. And because of the work of Jesus Christ, this isn't just a group of a bunch of people with all sorts of different stories and background. This is one giant family. Let's pray. God, thank you for the gift of your son. God, we were, God, I was lost without you. God, I, I, we look at the work that you have done, the great price that the perfect older brother Jesus has paid. And we, we are just marveling at the beauty and, and God, just the, the, the miracle that is your son, Jesus Christ. And so God, today we... We confess that we have rebelled against you, that we have oftentimes maybe even said, God, you're dead to me and I want nothing to do with you. But God, we, today we turn back to you. And God, for others of us, we confess that we have been arrogant, that we have neglected our younger brother. And God, today we just pray that you would wipe away any pride, any judgmental attitude, any condescension that might be in our lives. God, purge our hearts of that. God, we want to be more like your son. So convict us where we need convicting. Grant us peace where we need peace. But God, most of all, draw us closer together as you draw us closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Guys, thank you so much. Go in peace and serve the Lord. You are dismissed.